And there was a podcast that talked about the math behind becoming a millionaire. And it was really just a simple equation. You put a certain amount in, you got a certain yield, a return, and that amount will grow. And I found a, a calculator online. I think it's a simple like compound interest calculator. And I would play with the variables and I'd be like, okay, if I can put this amount in, you know, in 15, 20 years, you know, we can, I can get to seven figures and it just blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. And you work for a corporation and you see people that have worked there for 15, 20, 30, 40 years will lose their positions. You get pretty serious about investing in yourself and, and taking every paycheck and having gratitude for it and investing it because you know it can be gone. You, you realize it can be gone. Downturns happen, so you better better plan. But you also have to have balance. You can't be obsessed with that. You know, you have to enjoy life. And you know, I was probably a lot more paranoid back then. And it probably didn't help me because I probably stayed at employers longer than I should have. The best advocate for yourself, no one else is going to manage your career for you. You really have to take the bulls by the horn and do that. And it's on you. Or, you know, there's a price for comfort and complacency. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 271. Hope everybody's getting into the holiday spirit here. I know we're getting all sorts of uh, weather changes and snowstorms all over the country. So hope everybody's staying safe and staying warm. I had several questions come in this week regarding the donor advised fund and just charitable giving in general, and you know what millionaires do, how they think about it. And we have asked this question quite a bit on the podcast with different millionaires, but definitely we'll we'll try to put a little bit more of a focus on it. Uh, uh, going forward, given that it, we've had had a lot of questions, especially this last week after John mentioned uh, donor advised funds, but you know there are I think Fidelity, Ch- Vanguard, Schwab all have them. Really, it's a it's a, it's a way to kind of control your charitable giving, and there's some tax planning that you can utilize around them as well. But uh, something to look into if you're if you're big on charitable giving, or if you want to start doing things like that um, in a more structured environment. There's a lot of flexibility and a lot of interesting things that you can do with donor advised funds. I personally uh, set one up a couple years ago and, and use it uh, frequently, and it's a pretty seamless way to give and and be able to use some tax planning around uh, those donor advised funds. So once again, you can go check those out, consult your tax advisor, how may it uh, affect your personal situation, but uh, we'll will for sure ask more millionaires about charitable giving and, and just strategies in general that they utilize uh, on that uh, going forward. So appreciate those questions uh, that, that you all have written in. This week we have Paul. He lives in the Northeast and he is 40 years old. He's a net worth of $1.4 million. 825K of that's in his 401k. He's got a brokerage of a couple hundred grand, just under a couple hundred grand in a Roth IRA. And then he's got an 8K in an HSA and a little bit in crypto, $5,000. About 500, or excuse me, about $100,000 in home equity and $75,000 in cash. A great episode this week with Paul. We get 
into the weeds and on just managing career and career path, career trajectory and earnings and expectations. So great conversation with him along with his allocation and how he's kind of gotten to where he has. Last week we had John in worth of several million. He had a pay for a house that he was looking to take a mortgage out, which was an interesting conversation. He had some investments in the market along with some investments in, in franchises as well. And some small holdings in gold and silver in the safe. Once again, if you'd like to submit a millionaire question, go ahead and email that over at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com and we will read that on the air. There's also a speak pipe if you'd like to record that and have it played as well. So let's get into the episode with Paul. Paul, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. I am 40 years old, live with my wife in the Northeast. I uh, have a net worth of $1.4 million. Did it pretty much the standard nine to five way. But yeah, happy to, to be on the show and, and learn more or, you know, divulge more, I guess, about our journey. So 1.4 million in net worth. How is that broken up? Yeah. So the majority is 401k, 825k or so in 401k, depending on the day you check. We do have a, a brokerage account, uh, a few brokerage accounts that come up to around 200,000. We also have Roth IRAs getting close to 180,000. We have an HSA of around 8,000. We have a small amount in crypto, around 5,000 or so. Um, and then we have, you know, our home equity continues to grow with with those asset or those prices rising. So around 100K in home equity, give or take. We do hold some cash around 70, 75K and we have one automobile right now that's worth around 12,000. Awesome. So quite the gamut. Have you always contributed to 401K? Yeah, I've always contributed. Obviously, as our incomes have gone up, um, we, you know, percentage we put in has gone up. So I'd say contributed for probably the last 17 years, never maxing out, you know, every year. We probably have been maxing out since uh, 2013. And then how long have you been contributing to the, the brokerage and the Roths? Yeah, I'd say the brokerage and Roth started around the same time, 2012, 2013, just uh Really learned a lot about all of that through Bogleheads. That was kind of instrumental in kind of understanding the building blocks of you know personal you know wealth building and getting your money into tax sheltered accounts and planting those seeds and, and seeing them grow. What was your net worth when you started that? Do you know when I started the, the Roth account? Yeah, the Roth and the brokerage Roth, account. Probably around a hundred thousand. Wow. So really, I mean, you've you've basically become a millionaire and. Less than ten years. Yeah, that first hundred thousand. The saying, you know, that that's the hardest definitely rings true for myself. And I have a, a spreadsheet where I, I listed out how many days it's it's taken to get to different hundred k milestones. And that first milestone um, took quite a bit, probably nine years, eight to nine years. And then we've been we've been hitting hundred k milestones in ninety days. This last, you know, been insane with markets, you know, rising. And when you have a a portfolio of seven figures, it, you know, it can rise pretty quickly when you, when you know markets go up. So the the HSA, this is some Clark and I have talked about a little bit recently, a couple of different times on on intros and with a few millionaires. And and to some degree, it's surprising that we don't have as many uh, that have them. You do have one, and the balance you said eight thousand. Yes. Do you invest that? I do, and I'll say, you know, I know you guys always ask any mistakes. This has been my fun where I've been a little more exploratory and I've invested in, you know, stocks that I've, I feel like have a little more potential. Now it hasn't panned out. I haven't 
seen gains in my HSA that I've seen in my other accounts. So I probably left some money on the table there. I actually hold um, a good chunk of uh, a Bitcoin ETF in that HSA. Um, so that's been one one that's done okay. Um, but yeah, there's been some other you know smaller uh, stocks that have been just so volatile. But it kind of gets my palate, and you know I, I love the markets and I love seeing you know, companies grow. And I think that small amounts plenty for me. But yeah, that you know the value of that HSA is kind of low because I've I've been with four or five employers and only one or two of them have offered HSAs. So um, huge advocate of it. I think it's just a probably the best investment tool out there right now. But unfortunately, a lot of employers don't offer them. We also pull from them. We're not, you know, we don't believe that we're going to save receipts and when we're 65, start cashing them in. You know, we, we don't use um, all of it. And obviously we have a balance, but um, I've used some of it in the past um, from other employers. Do you plan to continue to grow that? Yes. I'm actually, you know, starting at a new organization soon that allows that. So um, I'll be jumping back into fully funding that mm-hmm. and I'll probably put it more into a, like a mutual fund and rather than slicing and dicing it into some some individual stocks. Interesting. So in terms of the way you allocate dollars in at this point, first dollars going to 401k, 401k match, and then Roth, and then tech brokerage, HSA. How is the breakdown between all those? What's first, what's second, third, so on? Exactly. Yeah, I think we prioritize 401k first. And as you noted, I have some cash, so we'll have the 12,000 ready on January 1st to deploy in the Roth IRA. Those are really the two that we um, you know, commit to, to funding. And over the last year, I've, every other dollar has been going into the market. I used to try to build up cash reserves when we bought our house a couple of years ago. We wanted some funds to use for that. We're pretty good on cash now. So any additional money we have left over goes into mutual funds, BTSAX, been getting into VGT a lot lately, which is a tech fund Vanguard offers. It's performing pretty well. So yeah, that's pretty much the methodology uh, for now. And then, you know, when I started, this other employer will be contributing to HSA as well. And then within the HSA, you said you have crypto. When did you add crypto to your holdings and why did you do that? Yeah, I thought I saw the upside with crypto. I saw, you know, obviously the tax advantages of holding it in an HSA, I thought made sense. Started probably in I mean, not the best time to do it, but it's still done okay. I think we're up around 15% on that. And what's your thought there? Are you going to keep adding more? I mean, do you think crypto is the future? Yeah, I'll be honest. I don't, I feel like there's uh, a lot to learn with crypto and I'm I'm not going to invest a lot of time into it, but I'd, I'd like at least a small piece of it for that FOMO. You know, I'd like to at least have that couple lottery tickets in the, in the mix there, but uh, I'm definitely not someone who's going to allocate a, a good chunk of our portfolio to crypto. Yeah. And then when you were just talking to Jace about the allocation, you have traditional and Roth. Was it always that way? Did you add Roth later in the game? And, and where do you allocate now? Is there a preference on where you put that money? Yeah. So it's always been Roth. And when you say traditional, like, you mean 401k? Yeah. Or just, yeah, 401k without the Roth shop, Roth option. You could either right. do a Roth 401k or a traditional, right? Traditional 401k and then Roth IRA. Okay. And your your employer then maybe doesn't offer the Roth 401k option. They might. I haven't really dove in, dived into um, analyzing. I know you guys talked about this on other episodes, uh, or maybe I'm getting mixed up with another podcast. But um, for now, I feel like this is the best funding model to, to fill up that traditional, get all the tax advantage savings there. And then 
you know, the Roth isn't an area where we also want to want to um, take advantage of. Yeah. So because you're in all these different accounts and you have the HSA, the Roth, the 401k, other holdings here, how do you allocate the money? What's kind of your order of operations? When every dollar comes in, what do you prioritize first? What do you fully fund before moving into the next thing? I mean, we've been fortunate that we don't, it's automatic. I mean, and that's one book that I wrote, right? The Automatic Millionaire was something that, you make it automatic. You don't even think like that. It just, it comes out, they're maxed out already. And then you've got, um, the remaining amount of money to, uh, use as you wish. Um, obviously you want to keep some aside for funding the Ross and that'll always be there. We usually fill the Ross up at the beginning of the year. So that's taken care of. And then, yeah, we, every, um, paycheck that comes in, I'll put some in my brokerage accounts and, um, that can fluctuate here and there, depending on what you know, our spending looks like in that month. But, you know, we're consistent with that as well throughout the year. Okay. And then real estate, what's your thinking there? Yeah. You know, I think if there's, uh, I've heard on another episode where, you know, one, a gentleman said, I think real estate was like a speed bump or one of his worst decisions. It's been a place for us to live. We love living where we live, but I can't say it's it was something that's accelerated our wealth building. If anything, it slowed it down a tad. Last year, we were we were you know really close to getting to that seven figure mark, and we bought our home. And um, there was closing costs that came with that. And I, I joked with my wife. I said, you know, if we wouldn't have bought this home, we'd be millionaires by now because we just you know we put all this money into the closing costs of the home and moving and all that. So there's a lot of costs associated with that. But the market's been rising. I mean, according to Zillow, the value of the home's gone up quite a bit. But, you know, we know with recent news that might not be accurate. So I think real estate is great for certain individuals. I know that you've interviewed it. It works out really well for myself, though. The markets have done so well. And and if I look back, um, if I would have been more focused on real estate, getting myself into a home and um, when I wasn't really necessarily ready for that, I would have missed out on this amazing market run that we've had. So I'm pretty happy that it, you know, I was patient with that. And when the time was right, got into a home. Yeah. So let's talk about the home just because the real estate market has gone crazy, as you just alluded to. How much did you buy it for and how much equity did you put in? And now what do you estimate that it's worth? Yeah, it was bought around uh, 320000 They're saying it's worth around 375000 So it's gone up quite a bit. Um, put 20% down, got a 3% mortgage on it. So we're happy with the rates. So yeah, it's been it's been good in that sense. But whether or not we'll realize that is really up in the air. I mean, there's a place around the corner that just got sold for a lot lower than what Zillow listed, uh, Zillow listed so or estimated it. So it's really kind of an unknown um, that we're not really banking on. It would be great, I think, when we're ready to move on for us to see some some increase in value. But you know, we're not banking on it at all. Do you ever think about like sizing up in the home, taking yes. out your equity and buying a different home? We do. Yeah, I think that might um, be on the horizon in a few years. And so we're always um, thinking about that for sure. So that's why we keep you know some cash available and we'll, we'll build that up perhaps if needed as we get closer to that date. Yeah. And, and your young 40s, just to provide some perspective for listeners, I know that everybody always wants to know age, kind of where people are at. So yep. um, Paul, let's go to the beginning here of your story. How did this all start? Where, Tell us about yeah. your upbringing. How did you get interested in personal finance? Maybe as much as you're comfortable through your, yeah, your upbringing and career. I think it's a good question. I think you're always impacted by your upbringing. You know, my father always taught me the value of a dollar and he himself was um, big on you know education and 
realizing that they should have building wealth. He, um, he was a bonds guy. He was a big I bonds person and he didn't really get into the market that much. Um, but you know, when I graduated college in the early two thousands, he emphasized, you know, setting aside some of whatever I had left over and investing it into some sort of vehicle that would give return. Now people nowadays don't realize early two thousands, uh, savings rates were very high. You could go onto an online savings bank and get 5%. Four and a half percent, you could get I bonds for four or five percent. So there was decisions that needed to be made about you know where you invested your money. And I understood the market had some value, and there was a lot of literature around age and bonds and and slicing and dicing your portfolio so that you had um, kind of a safety net there. So I didn't get I got had some mutual funds, but I also had a lot of I bonds, and I had a lot of money in savings accounts because the the yield was great. You know, from 20, 2005 to 2010, 2011, the market only returned maybe 4 to 5%. And if you were, you know, um, looking at I-bonds or high-yield savings accounts, it was almost the same. So like what I said was there was decisions that you had to make weren't completely in the market. So, you know, I always saved money, but I wasn't as fired up about it as I started when I started seeing the momentum and the compounding and the 2011 to 2013, 2014, let's say. So that's why that first 100K took so long, I would say. I wasn't making you know, a ton of money. I had expenses, but I still set aside some money. And it was cool to see it grow. And you saw some interest, but it wasn't anything I dove too deep into. And then I read that book, The Automatic Millionaire, and understood the principles behind that. And I was like, okay, I definitely want to keep, start it and make it automatic. And you know, 08, 09 stuff came and it's like, wait a minute, I'm losing money. I'm not like getting ahead. I actually lost my job in 20, 20, uh, 2009. And like, wow, this is a tough world we're in, right? But stuck with it and so glad I did. And, and then, you know, 2012 and 2013 happened. I'm like, I got to get as much money in this market as I can. I mean, 2013 was a 30% year and I saw my net worth balloon up a bit. And I was like, wow, like I'm going to be as frugal as I can while I can. And get as much money in this market because I believed in it. And I read a lot of you know threads on uh, Boggleheads about folks who were 10 years my senior, 20 years my senior that built really nice net worth. And I was listening to podcasts even back then. And there was a podcast that talked about the math behind becoming a millionaire. And it was really just a simple equation. You put a certain amount in, you got a certain yield, a return, and that amount will grow. And I found a, a calculator online. I think it's a uh, simple like compound interest calculator. And I would play with the variables and I'd be like, okay, if I can put this amount in, you know, in 15, 20 years, you know, we can, I can get to seven figures and it just blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. And I, it's almost like a vision board. Right. And here we are, you know, 12 years later, 11 years later, but it's kind of materialized. It's surreal. So if we, if we didn't have this bull run, I mean, I don't know how much confidence I would have had in it. I'm, I'm so fortunate that I've been able to partake in this, but these bull runs have occurred in the past. I mean, my father, if he would have been invested in the 80s and 90s, would have been able to participate in something like this. When you look back at you know the rate of returns in some of these other decades, so no, it was it was kind of a combination of all of that, and fortunate and how information flows nowadays and what's out there and how you can learn from other people is pretty cool. Yeah, thanks for sharing. So with this run up, does that make you want to reallocate or pull some money out of the market? It's a really good question. Being 40 and, and being 25 years away from even needing this, I don't know if it's like 
necessary right now. And when you talk to folks about allocation of bonds, they kind of laugh because, you know, there's there's no other game in town right now other than the market. So what else, where else can it go without it losing value, right? And the last thing you want is your your assets to lose value. So I don't think right now, I think, I think target date funds are good for that. You know, like my parents are probably in target date funds, but our folks, my parents' age, and that's great because it'll adjust as you get closer to retirement age, but that's probably something we'll look at down the road as something to kind of, you know, that the saying, once you've won, won the game, why continue playing? There, there is a lot to that saying, I think, and lessons to that saying. Um, but I still have a good chunk of, you know, work ahead of me. And I believe the trends and patterns we've seen that it will continue. And, you know, I don't think we're going to enter a bear market for 25 years. So let me jump back to 2009. You said you lost your job. Um, if, if you're 40 now, as you just said, so you were, that's when you were 28. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was your net worth at the time? Gosh, um, probably around 50,000. And did you ever, I mean, you obviously didn't think as you just alluded to that you'd be at a million just 10 years later. I mean, what was the thinking there? Did, yeah. Did you have, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I lost a lot, you know, Clark, it probably, this is all going to kind of make sense. So when you lose your job and you work for a corporation and you see people that have worked there for 15, 20, 30, 40 years will lose their positions. You get pretty serious about investing in yourself and, and taking every paycheck and having gratitude for it and investing it because you know, it can be gone. So, you know, I, I would see some of my colleagues, like I said, 20, 30 years at the same company, be their positions be eliminated. And I said to myself, this could very well be what happens to me. And it's, it's kind of a harsh reality. So I better have plan or I better have financial independence, right? That's what it's all about. Like if, if it happens to you, you're good. You've got what you need and you'll live fine. So um, I think that probably was a blessing in disguise when that happened, right? Because you, you realize it can be gone. Downturns happen, so you better better plan. But you also have to have balance. You can't be obsessed with that. You know, you have to enjoy life. And, you know, I was probably a lot more paranoid back then. And it probably didn't help me because I probably stayed at employers longer than I should have. That's another thing I want to point out is, you know, we're all free agents, you know, you can find different jobs. My income has probably doubled since then and or more than that. And it's been because I've looked for other employment and advocated for myself. You're, you're, you are... Um, the best advocate for yourself. No one else is going to manage your career for you. You really have to take the bulls by the horn and do that. And it's on you or, you know, there's a price for comfort and complacency. Paul, why do you think that you stayed at some of those employers longer than maybe you should have? Yeah, because I think um, in that environment in 0809, people were just happy to have a job. So no one ever knew that things would turn around. They thought this could last for years. So once you get in that mindset, you'll you'll say, well, it's a good place, you know, stable, you know, this and that. And you kind of talk yourself into staying one more year. But, you know, it's uh, it's not the greatest mindset to have uh, if you want to if you want to grow or your income, that is, too. How often do you think people should look for opportunities? You mentioned being a free agent and, and you know, everyone's entitled to that essentially in the job market. When do you think it's appropriate based on your experience that people should kind of look for that and advocate for themselves? That's a good question. I don't think there's like necessarily like a benchmark on that. I think, you know, I think you have to do your research. There's, like I said earlier, there's so much information now online and you have 
uh, websites like glassdoor.com. Fishbowl is a new cool um, networking site for professionals to kind of crowdsource ideas around, am I being paid enough? Is this competitive? So go out there, do the research, do the legwork. And if you feel like you're under market, you know, go out and get what you're worth. That could be a year, that could be two years, it could be three or four, but you know, you go out there and look on LinkedIn, it seems like a lot of people are staying in employers for maybe three to four years on average now. It doesn't seem like much longer than that. You know, job hopping used to be something that was frowned upon. Now, if you have a story that makes sense and an employer wants you, that's not going to interfere with you getting an offer. Yeah. Especially in this market, it's labor short. And I think companies are less picky around around things like that. So when you look out in 10, 15, 20 years, what do you look like net worth wise? What does your allocation look like? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's good. I mean, obviously when you've built, you know, 1.2 and in the portfolio, it's going to, even if you don't invest another dime, it's going to grow uh, significantly over 10, 15, 20 years. So, you know, that's reassuring. Obviously, I want to continue to work. I want to continue to invest. You know, I find work fulfilling and gratifying. I'm not someone who is ready to step away, you know, but I don't have like a number in mind. I think inflation the way it is, is going to take, you know, a life, uh, it'll it'll play a role in that. And um, we'll just assess as, as time goes on and, you know, speak with people and, and try to get uh, a good idea when it's right to maybe take a take a good chunk of it into maybe a target fund. Um, but yeah, the last thing we want to do is kind of jeopardize the value of it because there isn't much of a yield you can get outside of the market. With what you're doing now to structure your investments in these tax-advantaged accounts, how do you plan on withdrawing from these at, at the appropriate time and which order do you do, you do that at? Yeah, that's so far down the line, uh, Jace. I don't know. I don't have a great answer for you. I'll obviously, um, I'll obviously consult with folks who 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 have good expertise in that and make smart choices around that. But yeah, when it'll get interesting, right? Because I think we'll still both get unemployment or social security, and there'll be, you know, I'm confident that'll be around. And, and then we'll just obviously have to, you know, RMDs for me are 32 and a half years away. That's it just seems like such a long time that will until our hands will be forced to actually take from these funds. So we'll see when that comes. Why have you chosen now to put more in in pre-tax accounts than maybe funding a Roth? Well, no, the Roth's always funded. Um, the balance of it's lower because you obviously can't put as much into a Roth. Um, and we, I started my Roth in 2011 or 2012. So probably started the 401ks back in 05, 06, and there was employer matches. So I definitely, um, that's the reason for the difference in the balances there. It's probably a good question of what, you know, when is enough in the 401k? I mean, that's something that I don't know, but I do like getting um, our AGI lowered by maxing those out. You know, I think there's advantages to having a lower AGI. We, we qualified for a, a uh, was the... Um, Just the stimulus checks? Stimulus, yeah. Like, believe it or not, yeah, yeah. we qualified for a stimulus because our because we maxed our 401ks out and it brought us down lower a lower income threshold. So, no, I, I a lot of people online will ask, you know, why is your brokerage so low or why do you still have 70K in cash? It just feels right for us. I'm really proud that the brokerage has grown so much much actually um, over the last couple of years. A lot of people think there's so much flexibility in a brokerage and it's true to a certain extent, but there's also ways to tap into your 401ks before you hit you know, the required age for that as well. So Paul, let me just ask you, earlier in the interview you shared, 28 years old, you lose your job during 2009, net worth of what, under 50 you said, right? Like $25,000? 
around 50,000. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then in 12 years later, you're at a million. That's where you're at now. We've talked about allocation. We've talked about prioritization of money, maybe what you do in the future with that money. But for yourself individually, how has the money affected you as a person? Do you feel like your priorities have shifted? Has it changed anything for you? Does it even feel real maybe because a lot of that is unrealized? It feels real for sure. It gives you a lot more peace of mind. I think you're not as concerned with job loss. If if my wife or I lost our job, we probably wouldn't be up in arms, right? Especially in this market. You obviously want to enjoy life. You want to, you know, you're only our age for a certain period of time. So it's fleeting. You want to obviously spend money on things that you enjoy. Ramit Sethi wrote a book, I Will Teach You Be Rich. And one of his premises is money dials. And I think that's huge. I think you spend mercilessly on things that you that bring you joy. And I think that we can do that now. We're not huge spenders, but I enjoy certain things and my wife enjoys certain things and we don't hold back and we don't have any really anxiety around that. So, and we also, you know, another thing I want to point out is we've gotten to where we have because we've gotten the big things right. And I think you get housing and cars right and a lot of the other things can just fall into place. You know, you can buy your coffees, you can go on some vacations, you can spend on clothes, you can, you know, do different things, but we don't have a house that's too big for us. We don't have cars that are lavish and cost a ton of money to maintain. So those are some other tenants I think that been instrumental. Um, and like I mentioned, I did. We have we waited till we bought our home. We never really knew what kind of home we wanted. We lived in a one bedroom apartment. It was a nice apartment. It was a luxury building, but we didn't get a two bedroom apartment. Um, I lived really close to work. Didn't have a long commute for a bit. So Mr. Money Mustache played a little role into some of those things as well. (laughs) You mentioned spending a little bit more and in the form you filled out prior to the interview when we asked about mistakes and advice, the two you gave were contribute to your Roth earlier and spend a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like, what what does that mean? You were too frugal early on or you prioritized investing? It's so weird because, yeah, if I wasn't that way, then I wouldn't have probably been able to max out my 401k when I was making 50,000 a year. That was a huge chunk of my, you know, income. So yeah, I mean, in hindsight, you know, you look at some decisions you made and you were like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have skimped there. You know, like I'll, I'll give you an example. I lived in an apartment that was close to work, but it might not have been the best neighborhood. The first day I moved in, my car was broken into. And I was like, what did I get myself into to save some money? And, you know, but sacrifice, I guess. And in hindsight, you cringe at it a little bit, but that's because where, where I am today, I, mean, I don't know. So did you worry about money back then? I wouldn't say worry, but it was a priority. And I knew that I wanted to max certain things out. In order to do that, you had to sacrifice in a certain area, right? You, you know, your rent would have to be a little bit lower or you wouldn't spend as much on clothes or you know, dining out or drinking or you know, different things like that. All right. Well, Paul, let's wrap up with a couple of rapid fire questions and then we'll get into some last words of advice here. So what's been your most expensive non-car, non-house purchase? A toy, a vacation, most expensive non-car, non-house? Yeah. I mean, my wife's um, engagement ring probably. How much you spend? Oh, geez. Uh, let's say it was slightly below 10000 Okay. Uh, what about your most expensive vacation? Probably our honeymoon. We went to uh, Hawaii and we bought it through Costco, which it was great. I mean, Costco gave us great deals. We got a rental car, flight and stayed in a beautiful resort. So we didn't skimp, but we still went through Costco and I'm a huge Costco guy. So I don't know how much that was. It wasn't too crazy, but it was a wonderful experience. 
Okay, great. Most expensive car? Yeah, I had a nice car. I had a luxury car. Um, I bought it used though. And um, I think I mentioned we're one car household now. So I sold it. Sold it for a really good amount, actually. Um, only a few thousand less than what we paid for. Enjoyed it for a few years and saw you know value in, in getting those dollars back into the market. It's a funny story, too. With that car, I had a warranty on it. And someone on Twitter told me, you can sell the warranty back. Because I realized, this warranty is stupid. I'm not driving this car, and it was a couple thousand bucks. I sold the warranty back for like $1,500. Invested that money in January of this year into like VTSAX. <laughs> Yeah, it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What items or experiences are worth spending more money on and what's not worth the money? Yeah. I mean, everyone will probably say this spending time with people, uh, building like friendships, um, making memories in those sense, uh, whether it's golfing or going out to dinner, um, seeing a show, just those are invaluable and bring, bring a lot of happiness. So go for that as much as you can. That's what life's about. Okay. Uh, how old were you when you became a millionaire? 39. 39. All right. Have you ever used a financial advisor? No. Okay. Any books or websites, anything that's been influential to you? Yeah, definitely. Shout out to Boggleheads. So the people on there are, you know, they talk to talk and walk the walk. Very helpful. Uh, Twitter has been great. Books, like I said, Ramit's book, Automatic Millionaire, uh, Psychology of Money, um, Millionaire Next Door. And then podcasts. Your podcast is wonderful. Bigger pockets money. There's so much out there. It really, so much content you couldn't even. It's so hard to kind of actually yeah, absorb it. Yeah. 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 Yep. All right. Range of household income through your work in life. Yeah, I, I started right out of school around twenty three thousand, and uh, combined now around two hundred forty. Wow. Way to go. Uh, annual household spending. Probably eighty to ninety. We don't track completely. Last year we probably spent about sixty because there was nothing open. We couldn't really spend too much money. But we've we've definitely been trying to spend a little bit more this year to get over that pen up demand. Okay, do you currently have any debt? Uh, the mortgage on our house is around like that. How much? Uh, I think it's around two forty. Forty left. Okay. And then has the money brought happiness and success? Are you more happy, more confident because of it? I think confidence is a good word to use. Um, I think less anxiety around every paycheck coming in. Now, you know, sometimes you forget if you're paid a certain Friday. Last, you know, if you asked me that ten years ago, every paycheck that came in. Every dollar had, you know, a use for it. But yeah, definitely overall, I would say it moves the needle. Yeah. So we've hit on this a little bit, Paul, but just last words of advice here. If someone comes to ask you, hey, you did this in 12, 13 years. Obviously, we've talked about the bull market. That helps. But how were you able to do this so quickly? What is somebody, what's the advice you would give to a 25-year-old that's starting out of school and says, hey, how did you do this? It's a math equation. It it really is at its core math. Um, The psychology and emotion behind it is there. So you have to get that in check. And there's a lot of resources to learn more about that. And then obviously your income is important. That's a variable that you can control and, you know, choose your companies wisely. There's great companies out there that will give you amazing matches. That matches free money that goes into a tax, you know, sheltered account that can really grow over time. Play with those calculators, visualize it, uh, listen to people who have accomplished these things and you will definitely get there. There's no doubt about it. I am definitely not the smartest person. Um, and there's so many smart people out there that, you know, you can learn from. And, uh, I think your, your podcast is one of them. So keep listening to this one. Awesome. Thanks. Well, thanks Paul for coming on net worth of 1.4 did it pretty quickly. So congrats on your success and thanks for coming on and sharing your story. My pleasure, Clark and Jace. Great speaking with you. Thanks Paul. Thanks. Have a good one. 
Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.